left the north, I travel south. I found a tiny house and I can't help the way I feel. was the Smiths with a track called Is It So Strange from the album Louder Than Bombs. I'm David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again for another award-worthy show. Well, I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, I'll be crossing time, space and genre with the finest in indie pop. And this week, we always have a special guest. And I caught up with Luke Haynes from the Alters, Bard of Mind, half also Black Box Recorder, and The Servants. Yes, The Servants, all the way back from the 80s. So I'm going to be bringing that interview in probably five easy-to-digest little segments throughout the show alongside the usual award-worthy playlist, but to kick off the show and to get the party rocking, this is going to be the auteurs on the track called Showgirl. Mantra alive Got my karma And a 
It takes no gentleman. It takes no gentleman. It takes no gentleman. Yes, The Servants, all the way back to probably 1986, featuring the great work of singer-songwriter David Westlake. That was a track called It Takes No Gentleman. And before that, we had the auteurs with the track called Showgo Girl. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 show, bringing you a special on Luke Haynes, who I interviewed quite a few, um, well, not that long ago, probably a week or so. So, um, yes, he's got a new album out and also a live date, I believe, on the 5th of May. Um, in London at the Lexington. So um, I'm going to bring you be bringing you the first part of that interview because there's uh, five parts to bring. So um, I thought I'd split it up just to keep the excitement going throughout. So this is the first part where I, I ask him a little bit about the early years and the servants and all that groovy stuff. I know it was so predictable, but you have to ask him. Yeah, I, well, I was in a bank of the servants. Um, I wasn't on in uh, in the lineup that was on C eighty six. I joined uh, like a few months later when that lineup had kind of combusted after after about two singles or whatever. Because the lifespan of bands in the eighties and those bands seemed to be very short, and it wasn't really no one really thought about kind of careers and stuff and music. That was only I think that was only kind of years later, um, like in the kind of I don't know maybe in the sort of mid nineties something like that. Uh, then or maybe even later than that when bands sort of started to have expect careers in music. So yeah, I started out in the back of the servants, and the servants had a track called Transparent on the C eighty six compilation, which uh, which actually was. Um, Bands didn't because I'm still friendly with David, the singer songwriter from the Servants, and he still does music in a kind of uh, you know in his own terms, like puts out an album every ten years or whatever he wants to do. Um, but uh, he didn't even want to be on that the compilation. Um, <laughs> the weird thing is, no, most bands didn't want to be on the compilation. Well, the famous they one saw it as a. Carry on, carry on. Oh yes, I would say the famous one was the June Brides, wasn't it? They they sort of famously turned it down, and then obviously, when they reissued this kind of years later or decades later, they were like, "Oh yes, yeah. please, can we be can we be on the sort of sixty six you know CD collection?" Well, I did a thing about it. Uh, I did a kind of an, an evening of C eighty six stuff um, a while ago, and Pete Astor from the Loft was said so the Loft refused to be on it, um, and uh, I think the Wolfhounds weren't very keen on being on it as well. <laughs> it was sort of, everyone was on it very reluctantly. And so the servants ended up giving a track uh, that David would always say was like his worst song. Um, and if he'd only known that the CSC six was going to still be remembered, whatever, having it's like 30 years later or whatever, um, you know, he would have, he would have, uh, you know, maybe considered giving them something better. Yes. Well, actually, most bands seem to be quite, you know, resentful at the time. You know, I remember meeting, talking to, I think, Dave Newton mm. from the Mighty Lemon Drops, who said uh, we only did it because they, yeah. they paid for our recording session. So we managed to do that. And yeah. then. 
And then obviously, yeah. as you said earlier, which I didn't realise this, but I found out now that most bands in that period and perhaps other decades as well had that kind of almost a four year narrative or five years, if they're lucky, of doing, you know, kind of getting together. They make a bit of a sound that's yeah. wor- worth listening to. They got played on John Peel. They did a John Peel session. They did the album. Mm. The tour kind of was kind yeah. of like interesting. The second album's a disaster. And, and if anybody ever toured America, they just came back uh, kind of zombified and hated each other. So five years is normally yeah. it, really. Well, that's still, that's still, I think that's that's pretty much still, I think the, the tour in America thing is the same for most English bands um, who, <laughs> who go over and tour America because, you know, you get a bit of, uh, well, you, 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 you know, back in, say, the 90s or something like that, you'd get a bit of press in uh, whatever, in the magazines, and you get played on the radio here, and you just kind of think, and you're a bit of a big noise here, and you, and I'm not just speaking about myself, I am speaking other bands, but you'd, um, you know, you'd, you'd kind of go over there, and you'd sort of think that America was interested in you, and then you realise that America's a very big place, and New York City and LA are, you know, kind of different places from the rest of America who are not interested in you at all, <laughs> unless you unless you tour there kind of 300 days a year and you really just, you, you know, you kind of just go there forever uh, and, and take a risk on, on being, being a big band in America. But I don't know, you know, I don't know what quite the kind of merits of that are. So, yeah, yes. there you go. That's uh, yes. I think also kind of going through airports and control is is also tips most people over the edge. So did the servants then? Did they come to a definite kind of let's let's sit down and be nice and call this, a, you know, the day? Um, well, yeah. By, by the end, it was really only David and myself as the kind of who were the the kind of core of the lineup, and he went back to. Um, and we got on really well, but no one was interested in us by the time we got to make what was the first album called Disinterest. Uh, I mean, there was a kind of, there was a fairly stable lineup at that point, but then after that, it was just really me and David. Um, and we went on to record a thing called, an album called Small Time. Um, that wasn't, it was just recorded in home studios and that, and it was good. Um, and then we, we recorded that. No one put it out. We didn't even try to get it released. Um, and we just sort of, we just had, we just, I'd had enough and he'd had enough. And so, yeah, it was very, it was kind of very amicable. And he, um, he went on to become a, he studied law, became a lawyer. And then I went and formed the auteurs. Yes. And did, um, you know, obviously most, you know, like I said, most people by then decide that there's no money in it. And it's kind of, you know, mm. there was a great Hunter S. Thompson quote, isn't there, about sort of the sharks and, yeah. the, you know, the drugs yeah. and everything. And then there's the bad side as well. But but you, you, obviously, <laughs> yeah. you obviously found yourself thinking, no, I love this. This is this is for me. I'm going to form another band. Well, it's a compulsion, really. Um, and at that point, I hadn't actually recorded any of my own songs. So I, I needed to do that, really, before I ca- kind of called it a day. Um, not that I was particularly thinking of calling it a day, but when I started the auteurs, I was I was ridiculously, I think I was about 24. And so I thought that this is probably my last chance um, of doing anything. Because, again, I think, you know, bands... There was a kind of emphasis on being younger then. No, it doesn't matter. It seems that everyone's allowed to be in a band until they're kind of 92, and I'm not quite sure how, how, how good an idea that is, but, but it seems to me no one really cares about how old you are anymore. Um, but back then, in the sort of late 80s and very early 90s, it still seemed that, you know, if you were a band, you know, in your 30s in a band, it was kind of like, whoa, you're kind of getting a bit past it there, sunshine. So... I, 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 uh, yeah, I, I hadn't done anything. So I, I felt that there was my that I truly owned that was my own songs and and that kind of thing. So I recorded some stuff for the auteurs was basically me to start with. Um, then I recruited a live band, a couple of people that I knew, a couple of friends, and we got bizarrely we kind of got signed. I think within about three gigs, um, and I. I was astounded that people were actually starting to offer us big amounts of money um, because that didn't used to happen, you know. And so it kind of, you know, I was utterly astounded basically when the first Auteurs album went into the uh, the midweek was like the top 10, I think. Um, And this this didn't really happen. So it was was just just kind of uh, not what I was expecting. 
There you go. That was the first part of my interview with Luke Haynes from, um, like I said, he's been in a lot of bands and also now has a solo career and an album that's going to be coming out very soon and a live date. Anyway, um, that was the first part of my interview. Um, four more to go. I know if you uh, if you like Luke Haynes, then basically this is radio magic. Um, let's play some music because, frankly, too much chat could drive anybody a little bit insane. But uh, this is another track by the auteurs. This is a, by um, a number called Lenny Valentino. <laughs> the auteurs on the track called Lenny Valentino. This is David Easter on the C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages. You can via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show and I will be there lurking in or on the internet, but not in the dark web. Oh, no. Anyway, look, uh, as you probably gathered and you should do, otherwise um, it'd be a bit weird if you didn't. Uh, this week's uh, C86 Show is a special on Luke Haynes because I caught up with him recently. And this is the second part of the interview where we talk about that great period of, uh, I suppose, the early years of Britpop when the uh, music industry and record labels were awash with money as everyone started to buy CDs at £13 and uh, make lots of money. So there was a lot of, um, I think there was a lot of drinking and some drugs going on. But anyway, this is where we talk about those early Britpop years. Take it away, Luke. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think that's true to say it probably was, but maybe more from about 1994, 95 onwards, rather than sort of 19. The, the Auteurs first album was released in February 1993, um, and it was still, it was still very much that kind of indie world. And uh, and then the, then the album that came after, which was the Suede album, went on to sell loads. Um, and I think that was one of the big the kind of big breakthrough albums, um, the British bands. I mean, obviously Nirvana, um, who were actually doing a similar thing, even though it's kind of, you know, in the ridiculous world of, uh, you know, how things are categorised. There's not a whole lot of difference really between Nirvana, Suede and the auteurs, I don't think, um, on a musical level. Um, just this come from different cities, really. Um, but the concerns are almost the same. So, um, and the sound is kind of the same, really, if you get down to the nuts and bolts of it. Um, so, yeah, there was, I guess, in the, yeah, in the 90s, it did go on, you know, there, yeah, there was a kind of uh, a lot of uh, expenditure around. Yes. 
because you know it's just you know I think record companies just couldn't believe everyone was you know replacing their vinyl with these CDs, which were costing thirteen pound and probably fifty p. Well, to that's make. true, but also also what happened was that Radio One changed, um, uh, which was kind of that was the thing that happened more more so than than people kind of banging on about Britpop. Uh, what actually happened is at the end of 1993, um, Radio 1 had a complete sea change and started playing. They got rid of all the old guard of DJs and they got people like Steve Mackin and all, you know, et cetera, um, Mark Radcliffe and all those kind of people. And they, they then started, they had a remit to start playing guitar bands uh, or what I suppose what was, what was new music at the time, which was kind of uh, suede and pulp. Uh, the auteurs, I mean, the, you know, the, the auteurs, one of the auteurs who was Lady Valentino actually got A-listed by Radio 1, which would have been unthinkable a year a year before that. So that was the thing that really changed the music industry, was essentially Radio 1, which people still listen to and people still bought records, um, you know, kind of paved the way for bands to actually start selling records, which they weren't doing before. Yes. This is true. And we had those great shine compilations mm. that, you know, for lazy listeners could just buy. We do indeed, yeah. <laughs> those yeah. collections of... Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've got them all. And I, <laughs> I play them all the time. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. For us music fans, yeah. you just buy the greatest hits and a shine compilation. And that's yeah, yeah, yeah. But look, yeah. everything's mm. going terribly well. And then, and then you had an accident, didn't you? Which, when, when you mm. broke your ankles. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, it was... Yeah. I think you make a decision when a subconscious decision when you're in a band. What I, it's what I call is you kind of go. I think all good bands go to the, go through to be any good. Put it like this, and I've said this before many times. But to be any good, you have to go through your professional period. You go through your struggling period, then you go through your professional period, then you go through your kind of unprofessional really cool period and i like to think that the um the professional period for me was about 1992 to pretty much about 1990 i don't know 1995 really um by the time the third kind of auteurs album uh has come out which was called after murder park um uh we were we were in a very very different trajectory and i had a very different philosophy to everything else that was going on and then i made an album called bardo meinhof which was totally uh, a thing in my head and that was kind of i kind of basically went on to explore that sort of direction yes uh, from then on in um because i didn't i don't know i found i found the whole kind of thing of touring make record then tour it for uh, you know, four or five months of the year. I mean, it, it sounds uh, not to sound ungrateful because that is, it's kind of good when you're young to do that. But I only had a tolerance for it up to a certain level. Um, so I did, I did sort of. I think I kind of deliberately kind of had an accident, to sort of get myself off of that uh, that schedule, which is a stupid thing to do because you can just you can just say no, obviously. Um, but I think I was acting subconsciously, really, uh, and just sort of like uh, hobbling myself, literally, uh, rather than just uh, stand up and say, look, I don't want to do this anymore. Let's just do something else. Because that way, I, I suppose the way I did it, it kind of gave me much more leeway. Um, than the more sensible way, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> and obviously, that third album you were just mentioned after Murder Park, mm. it was you. You um, had Steve Albini who produced that, who was yeah. obviously mm. for, for some of us, you know, was kind of this kind of um, god of production. I mean, you, you know, each yeah. decade has oh, yeah. a sort of producer, and there's the eighties had people mm. like I don't know the Trevor Horn sound, which obviously was a bit mm. sort of cheap and cheerful, but you know, no, it was big, wasn't it? And then you had people like Lundgren. But Steve Albini came with a sort of a package because of his work with Big Black and people like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, the, I mean, some would say that the idea of, of you know that that he that Steve kind of represents some kind of un uncompromising ideal of of how you record, but that's not really what it is. I mean, he but basically he just kind of comes in and records the band and he records it very well, uh, and he has a certain kind of sound. I would say I don't know whether he would say he has a sound, but. I think he does. He has a certain way of approach of mic and stuff. He's very, he's very technical. Um, and he's he's kind of very interested 
may be obsessed even with with the quality of sound. Um, and so his job is to kind of come in and record the best performance, which is why he doesn't call himself a producer. In effect, when we did that album, we'd done the band, uh, had done all the production on it because we prepared it all. And I knew where everything was going to go. I knew every instrument that was played. I knew every overdub um, that was going to go on the album. All Steve Albini had to do was, was bring his expertise and uh, his uh, recording skills and, and I guess his kind of vibes because um, if you're a certain kind of person, then Steve Albertini, uh brings very good vibes to the session. <laughs> if you're a different sort of person, maybe he doesn't. But um, uh, to, to to us, to me, he's always been uh, uh, he's always been a useful ear, and I still I still kind of uh, see, occasionally seek out his advice on things. So yeah, there you go. What a great chap, Steve Albini there. He would be somebody who um, I would respect with their advice on most things. And I do believe he's um, somebody who loves his cats. So what not to like about Steve Albini? Anyway, that was the second part of my interview with Luke. And um, yes, 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 yes. I've still got three more parts of that to go. I'm just looking at the time in that kind of groovy and dj sort of way. Anyway, look, this is another track. This is by uh, Luke Haynes. I know, it's just one of those love fests at the moment, isn't it, on the Luke Haynes front? But um, yes, also, he has got this date on the 5th of May and also has an album that is going to come out very soon, which I do believe is called I Sometimes Dream of Sniffing Glue. There you go, at our age, you have to get your kicks where you can. But anyway, this is a track called Bolan Blues. Take it away. was Luke Haynes and the track called Bolan, Mark Bolan Blues. I know, I've got it all organised. Anyway, look, the third part of the interview with Luke. 
Um, this is where we talk about that next period, because uh, most artists I find have, you know, just do a few years here and there, which is still impressive, five years, and then they sort of want to give up music forever, but actually not with Luke. He just kept going and going. And this is where we talk about his um, outfit called the Bard of Mindolf, which um, obviously, if you're a certain age, it did seem to sort of be in the news quite a lot during your childhood. Obviously, depending on your age, that is. Anyway, this is where we talk about that particular outfit and period of his musical life. Well, I had it. It was basically it was a kind of a sort of me- a broken memory that I had because this is again this is before the internet, so uh, I couldn't really. It wasn't. I, I had an idea about things I'd heard about Bader Meinhof, so the only kind of research I could do was to find uh, sort of a few dusty old books in foils or something like that, dusty old hardbacks um, that no one was interested in anymore and and find bits and bobs. There wasn't that much information around about them, so I relied kind of on my memory and I kind of took it from there. Um, so it wasn't a kind of research record. It was just an album about sort of broken childhood memories, really. Uh, uh, and I had, you know, I kind of had an idea of a kind of claustrophobic, European vainglorious terrorism, uh, but I also had this idea of, of the kind of experimental music that I wanted to to put together with these lyrics. So the whole thing was kind of an experiment, really. Well, it was an experiment. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, I didn't know, and I didn't know how it was going to how it was going to turn out. I didn't know what. I didn't really know what the point of it was. But it was something I had to do. You know, I think a lot of artists don't really know what they're doing most of the time. They're kind of it's the idiots of on. You know. <laughs> Yes. and you just do you just kind of go where you're kind of driven to go and that was a, that, that was very much the case with that album but it turned out well so you know uh, I wouldn't do it now but um, I'm, I'm proud of that record yeah yeah and obviously I mean I wasn't sure because I sort of spoke to Lawrence from Felt and he obviously did mm. an awful lot of albums during the 80s like one a year for 10 years mm. and that was one of his projects and I mentioned yeah. about the political side and he said no he wasn't at all aware of anything that was happening politically so because well, obviously when you did that album, Bard Meinhof, that was kind of the end of the Conservative Party, though you wouldn't have known that because this was the kind of probably the year before. So did you, I mean, were yeah. you ever influenced by the political landscape and the cultural landscape that was happening at the time? Well, I think all, I think all good art is, 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 um, is subconsciously political. Um, I think the thing is you don't actually, and I think a lot of things I've done have been political subconsciously, but I've never kind of, uh, you know, framed it, put it in a kind of gold frame and said, this is my response to, uh, you know, so-and-so. And this is this is the kind of thing that pisses me off about middle-brow criticism. You know, I sort of think, I've seen this thing several times in The Guardian, maybe over the last couple of, the last year, obviously. Um, you know, what, you know, these, these kind of think pieces, what, what will be the artistic response to Brexit? Well, you know, if someone's kind of saying this is my artistic response to Brexit, you know, it's going to be a dud from the start. Um, I don't think you need to. I think things that are kind of framed like that, I mean, are just kind of fairly, fairly crass, have no lasting effect. Uh, not that you know, not that art may, maybe art doesn't have any kind of effect politically. Who knows? Uh, but I think art works kind of subconsciously. Uh, certainly, music does. Um, so that's how that's how I kind of see it. But I wasn't I wasn't certainly you know when I was doing the Bard of Mindhof album, it wasn't it wasn't a political album per se. You know, it wasn't a statement. Uh, it's far from it really. I mean, it's very kind of loose uh, politically. You know, maybe maybe too loose. Yes, because obviously the other person that you know I was obsessed with was David Bowie, and, and having followed his career mm. from when I was kind of able to sort of be aware of him, which was kind of the early seventies. I mean, he changed everything. You know, he he was happy to change, and you you're one of the few artists mm. who've also done that, haven't you? You you've sort of gone mm. into yeah. different if different avenues and different cul-de-sacs and in different paths. So yeah. again, yeah. you know, you you've you've sort of main, maintained a kind of looseness. So obviously. How does that kind of work with you emotionally? Uh, well, it's you know I'm a different. I made say uh, you know new wave. I was sort of 24 years old. Uh, so when I make something like you know uh, the you know the last few albums I've made, some you know they I'm I'm you know I'm I'm a, I've kind of changed quite a lot, you know, because it was 25 years ago, um, and I would be if I was still making I don't know kind of jingly jangly albums and calling myself, you know, the auteurs, I think it would be, 
you know, I, I mean, I kind of admire bands who kind of continue that long. Um, but if I was still following the kind of blueprint of New Wave, which I don't think I am, <laughs> I, it would be, I think it would be kind of uh, slightly worried. I mean, I'm sure some people say, well, yeah, it's, you know, stuff all sounds the same. You always do get that with someone, but that's to, that's to kind of miss the, um, I suppose, the subtleties of it. So, and, you know, it's all about nuance, really. You know, if you're doing music and rock and roll, it's essentially about nuance. Um, so, I mean, you could, you know, if you were kind of like had cloth ears, you could listen to, you know, a Bowie track from, you know, whatever, Never Let Me Down. Uh, and you could say, well, essentially like the same as Young Americans. Of course, we know it isn't, but uh, it doesn't allow for, you know, there's they're a kind of a school of listening that doesn't really allow for nuance. Fascinating, I know. Um, I hear you say, and I uh, hope you're paying attention because I will be testing you at the end of the show. And like I said, this is David Easter on the C86 show. I will just say one more time, though that might sound a bit desperate, that uh, if you want to contact me, you can via email, Twitter, just go to at C86show. Um, but with two more parts of the interview still to go with Luke, I thought we should play another track. This is um, Bada Mind Health. idea of the first national pop strike and um, yes why he did it and um, the concept behind it because let's face it it was a very conceptual piece of art and um, idea but um, a good one at that anyway Luke tell us about the national pop strike well, there's a bit a mild bit of kind of situationism, really. Um, that I, just, I, I had an album coming out called The Oliver Twist Manifesto, and it was full of weird kind of art concepts and stuff. So I just thought I'd do the weirdest thing possible, and I'll kind of ask people not to buy the album. Um, so I kind of invented this ridiculous idea, which kind of still stands, um, that there is too, too much pop music and you could actually quite easily 
you know, have a week of not producing any pop music in this country. And perhaps, you know, it would be better for it, you know, because uh, there's a kind of glut of pop, you know, let's just call it pop music, rock and roll, whatever. Let's just put it all under, you know, one. I was kind of, I was just going for the kind of, it was basically all music, um, you know, including classical music, uh, you know, kind of, uh, uh, I, I don't know, uh, avant-garde music, minimalism, all those kind of things. It was everything, basically. Um, so the idea was there would be no music produced and there would be, it was kind of like, you know, a kind of just end capitalism for a week in the, in the music industry. It's just a joke. I had, Obviously, it was completely not serious, but I think some, some people actually took it seriously and thought I was insane. Um, but, but it was just, uh, you know, and then, then Bill Drummond obviously nicked the idea. <laughs> um, and, but that, to be fair, I'd actually nicked the idea from um, Stuart Home, uh, who, who proposed the art strike um, a few years earlier. And Stuart Home had nicked the idea from Gustav Metzger. Uh, the famous auto-destructive artist who died very recently, great Gustav Metzger, um, and he he proposed an art strike um, for a week. So it's just all it's just all kind of um, you know recycling the same idea. Well, it wasn't that serious. Um, it's good though. Um, and uh, but a few a few a few kind of gallant souls joined in, which is quite funny. But uh, far too many didn't. So you know, as far as I can see, they're all scabs. <laughs> 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 this is true. Yes, I know. Because going back, because yeah. you worked into sort of film music, and there was a particular British a British film based on the novel by um, B. S. Johnson. Now, this is the author who oh, yeah. you when when one bought the book because I did own it. And I'm trying to make sure this is the right author. That the chapters were loose, as in you could just rearrange the chapters. Is that? the particular author and book that we're talking about. Yeah, that's B.S. BS Johnson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was a bit the book. That's a different book. The book was, you were talking about a book called The Unfortunates, where you could um, you could rearrange the chapters. But Christy Mowry was a book, was maybe his most famous book, B.S. Johnson. Um, he was actually a sports writer. And uh, uh, Christy Mowry is a book about a sort of uh, a, a lone cell urban terrorist um so yeah there was a film made of it in about 2001 which i soundtracked yeah right because i i can remember when that they reissued it and it probably was in the 90s that book which which you could just take the chapters and yeah. then sort of put it together in different a different yeah, sort of yeah, order which right, was yeah. quite interesting i mean when yeah. when you sort of look back what would you kind of say to your 18 year old self if you'd bumped into them and thought oh i just give them a quick word of advice don't worry you're right <laughs> That's what I'd say. <laughs> It'll all work out. You know, just keep keep doing your own thing. Don't worry about it. Bow to no one. Because <laughs> <laughs> you'll be all right. Oh, um, yeah. yeah. Because the one thing that a lot of people get tripped up on is is also the kind of admin, the publishing, the management. I mean, did you manage to mm. navigate? How did you navigate that murky world? Oh no, I've had. Oh God, I've had. I've had my. I've had my ups and downs of that. I've signed. You know, there's the old the old uh, saying of, uh, you know, everyone signs at least one bad contract. I've signed more than one bad contract in my life. Um, I may, I, you know, I may even sign more as I go on. Um, but you know, uh, <laughs> and I've, you know, I've lost uh, tens of thousands of pounds along the line. Um, uh, it's certainly in an, in an American record deals scenario one of my bands black box recorder we we're still owed a lot of money um from a, a, a nefarious record company uh in america but these this is the this is the stuff that this is all the stuff that kind of goes along the way um i mean i don't know if this happens now in the music industry because the music industry has changed so much and um maybe the large sums of money aren't even there you know maybe there'll be a kind of point when everyone you know stands up and says well hang on well they are going to say it but you know you know spotify you know owe me x amount of money because of this terrible deal yes. you know we all signed um but uh, you know i you know i've had i've had stuff i've had managers you know managers come and go uh, managers very much like kind of Doctor Who's, you know, in uh, music. You know, there's a new one comes along every few seasons. <laughs> you know, uh, and sometimes you don't have one. So, you know, when when Doctor Who's off the air, you know, <laughs> then, then another one comes along. So it's not, it's not. None of this stuff is that is that important. You know, I've seen people get really kind of um, 
sort of frustrated about it. And I just kind of let, I just sort of roll, I, I'm sort of, I think as long as the work keeps on coming out, you know, as long as you keep on producing stuff, that, that doesn't stop, then, then it kind of gets out there one way or another, you know. Um, so the, the whole business side, I'm not too bothered about. Anyway, I have, you know, I've been working with Cherry Red for ages now, and they're great. So, you know, um, so I'm in a pretty good position at the moment. So it's all right. I know there's a lot to take in with this. But anyway, you can always listen to it again on um, Mixcloud if you want to catch it. And like I said, um, yes, Luke has got this live date. And also um, he's got a single out at the moment and an album coming out. And there's lots on Cherry Red Records. So if you go to their website or even Luke Haynes' website, you'll find it. Anyway, instead of playing another track, I thought we should just go through to the fifth part of the interview. This is quite a short one, but this is talking about his current projects. And then I'm sad to say, dear listener, that will be the end of the show. But don't worry. It's going to be marvellous. Anyway, Luke, tell us what you're doing. Uh, with a new album out in May um, called I Sometimes Dream of Glue, um, which is another kind of concept album uh, about... Uh, it's about a kind of, uh, I suppose, a mutant population um, who, are, uh, who, who, who are kind of, like, stranded by the Westway uh, in a small kind of... Uh, small kind of settlement, uh, and they're addicted to solvents, and uh, uh, and have all become uh, kind of sex maniacs uh, because of it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a concept album, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, and they worship they worship uh, a beat about video of Michael Benting's party time. So, yeah, it's it's all in there. Yeah, it's all good. I mean, you you obviously you know having a bit, I suppose, like a lot of characters, like you know. Lawrence from Felt and uh, I don't know, I can't think of anybody else now. But, you know, like people who have kind of been, you know, at the cold face kind of producing music and mm. continuing yeah. and also changing direction and changing bands as well. So that's why I couldn't think of anybody else yeah. apart from Lawrence, really. Because most people, yeah, you know, yeah. like David Gage is kind of with the wedding present. And that's I suppose he's done other yeah, sort of bits. Yeah. But anyway, but the thing is, yeah, so you've obviously had to do lots of changing or you've done lots of changing. Do you sort of find mm. that you've, you've kind of, you know, you've pulled fans along with you or have you sort of, you know, have they sort of come and gone and sort of you picked up a whole new bunch? Oh, I think people kind of, I think people, people kind of come and go when you do, when you've been going in a long time, people kind of do come and go. I mean, I, you know, think about the bands you, you're into and, and stuff. I mean, I don't buy, you know, there were, there were points. I mean, I think I've probably got, I've got, apart from a few live albums, I've probably got most albums by the fall. But there were points when I probably didn't buy a fall album for a few years or I kind of lost interest just because I was distracted or, you know, uh, because of this or that, or I just didn't want to, I was fed up with the fall at that point. And I think that kind of, you know, it kind of comes and goes if you've got a long career. Um, I think certainly people who, who, who were into, I mean, uh, Black Box Recorder weren't always into my stuff because um, it's a very different sound, different singer, uh, you know, a kind of collab, much more of a collaboration um, and probably sonically quite different. So I think that was a, that was a different one. Um, and then you get people who, you know, who kind of, you know, they like the, you know, they like, you know, they just like the first Auteurs album, you know, and they're not that bothered, you know, uh, about anything else, which is fine, you know. Um, so, you know, it doesn't really matter to me, you know, just like, you know, it's whatever bit you like, that's fine with me. And there are people that, you know, that like the kind of solo albums, you know, and there are people that like everything. Um, you know, and I presume we've got like creaking kind of CD record shelves of my, yes. my stuff. So, And there you go. That is the last part of my interview with Luke Haynes, like I said, from the auteurs, Bader Meinhof, and a black box recorder and various solo projects as well. Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Easter on the C86 show. If you want to contact me for any reason, more make it nice and positive because, frankly, life is short and then we die. Um, So don't bother with anything negative. Do via Facebook or Twitter. Just go to at C86 show and I will be there. And it's always nice to hear from you. But anyway, I thought we should um, leave. I was going to try and play something from the new new single, but um, that didn't quite happen. But anyway, this is a black box recorder and the track called Child Psychology. Anyway, have a great week. Tune in next week for another special guest and another fabulous C86 show.
I stopped talking when I was six years old. I didn't want anything more to do with the outside world. I was happy being quiet. But of course, they wouldn't leave me alone. My parents tried every trick in the book. From speech therapists to child psychologists. They even tried bribery. I could have anything, as long as I said it out loud. This episode didn't last forever. I'd made my point and it was time to move on. To peel away the next layer of deceit and see what new surprises lay in store. My school reports that I showed no interest, a disruptive influence. I felt sorry for them in a way. And when they finally expelled me, it didn't mean a thing. Life is unfair. Kill yourself or get over it. Life is unfair. Kill yourself. Christmas decorations were already up. Spray on snow, coloured flashing lights, and an artificial tree that played silent night over and over again. My parents welcomed me with loving arms that within an hour were back at each other's throats. Normal happy childhood back on course, batteries not included. Life is unfair Kill yourself or get over it Life is unfair 